When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is chapter 219 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm Lisa T, and coming up, we check back in with a couple of authors who were guests when this podcast was first taking off. Daniela Burnett explains why being an author means being a good liar. Then, Allison Gilbert introduces us to one of the most prolific female writers you've never heard about. When we first started this podcast about five years ago, Daniela Burnett was one of the first authors I had the opportunity to talk with. It's been a while since we chatted about her contemporary mystery series starring journalist Emmeline Kirby and her reformed jewel thief Gregory Longden. And it turns out the duo has found even more trouble in the latest installment titled A Mind to Murder. And as you'll hear, Daniela has no plan of stopping anytime soon. We last checked in with you in 2017, which seems so long ago, a lifetime ago, really. Uh, When this podcast was brand new, we chatted about book three in your series. And here we are. You've written five books since then. It's time for book number eight. Tell us what your journalists and jewel thief are up to in A Mind to Murder. Well, you know, they're they're always embroiled in a pot of trouble. Now, a night at the theater is supposed to be a relaxing experience. And murder was only supposed to take place on stage. But when Emmeline and Gregory um, are at a performance of Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap at St. Martin's Theater in London, what do they find? A dead body. They come across the dead body of um, Verena Penrose, um, a tabloid reporter who is known for salacious exposés and blackmail. And it's not surprising that she was she was murdered. Um, Emmeline and Gregory uh, find her in her box at the theater when the theater is being evacuated when the ceiling collapses in the upper circle. So naturally, being at the scene of a crime is is ideal for a journalist. And Emmeline must find out what was uh, why Verena was murdered, because earlier in the evening, Verena cornered her in the bar at the theater during intermission and started spouting all her usual vicious um, comments to her because uh, Verena was jealous of Emmeline. They used to work at the same paper a long time ago. But Emmeline had a suspicion that Verena was trying to tell her something, that Verena wanted her help, which was odd because they were never friends to begin with. And then later on, her body is found. So Emmeline must find out what's going on. 
Naturally, Gregory has to keep her out of trouble because she just plunges in where angels fear to tread. But soon in their investigation, they realize that Verena was trying to murder uh, the Raven, an international assassin who has ties to the Russians and ETA, the um, militant group that was trying to um, create a homeland in northern Spain and uh, France. So that's the, the, the essence of the story. I love that you have two different types of journalists, because I mm -hmm. often feel whenever I read a novel that features a reporter, we're always the bad guys. We're always the ones who are like asking too many questions and trying to get to the bottom of things and getting too many people in trouble. And here in your book, we have someone who uses her forces for good and Emmeline and someone yes. who uses her forces for not so good. Well, I wanted to show the, the different aspects of that. But Emmeline uh, is a journalist that is always concerned with the truth and finding justice. Those are her core, the core of her fabric, that she must do that. And she must expose the truth at all costs. And sometimes to, to her peril, she does that. But um, you do have the two facets. I mean, I studied journalism. So uh, I never practiced as a journalist, but I studied journalism. And I, th that's my philosophy too, that, you know, the truth, the public must know the truth and the truth must come out, you know, not um, exposing security details or anything like that, but to, to ensure transparency, you must have that. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you have someone like Verena, who's only interested in headlines, who's only interested in um, making a name for herself. And in this, finding secrets and twisting other people's lives around. Now, someone has described your writing as if Ian Fleming colluded with Agatha Christie. How does that make you feel when someone says something like that? Oh, um, that's it's like it, it's it, it made me blush. It sent the adrenaline rushing through my veins because Agatha Christie is my hero. And to put my name in the same <laughs> sentence as Agatha Christie, I was like, I almost passed out. I couldn't believe it. It's like, that's such a great honor. And to have readers say that, that, that that's that's a, a I couldn't believe that. Have you always wanted to write mysteries? Yes. Yes. Uh, since I was nine years old, I knew I wanted to be a writer. And I started writing short stories and then develop, uh, writing other things. Um, that's what I wanted to be from the beginning. I knew that. And that's why I studied journalism, because that was the natural progression for me. So, yes, writing writing is like breathing for me. I just I simply have to do it. You recently wrote an essay featuring your top seven tips for writing mystery novels. And yes. I think my favorite one is your last one, which is The Art of the Lie, where you write that authors are consummate liars. And that made me stop in my tracks for a second because I trust authors so much. Whenever I read, I trust they're going to, you know, be truthful to me in their story and for you to just come out and say, well, you know what? We're all lying to you. <laughs> Tell me exactly what that means. Well, it is because, you know, I'm creating a story. Uh, it's, I mean, the story is not the truth, but it has to have the ring of truth so readers can continue turning pages and say, well, this could happen. Something like this could happen to a reporter or to, you know, if there's a jewel thief, if you happen to know a jewel thief. But um, we are liars. I'm creating a story. This is not real life. This hasn't happened. So I am lying. We all are liars. But it's 
creative lying, not malicious lying. It's lying to entertain. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's the whole point. You know, I want to entertain my readers. I want readers to continue turning pages, to find, to want to know, to find out what's Emmeline going to do? What's Gregory going to do? Is the bad guy going to get caught? Because ultimately, for readers, I think the crime has to be resolved. The culprit has to be brought to justice. You know, the reader wants answers. And I'm trying to create answers, but in a circular way. So that all being said, I'm going to guess we can expect more mysteries from you. Oh, yes. I'm working on book nine at the moment. Excellent. And have you ever thought about starting a whole new brand new series or or you still have a lot of stories to tell for these two for the moment emmeline and gregory are keeping me extremely busy uh i mean a lot of people have asked me you know how many books are you going to have in the series at this stage i don't know because i keep coming up with ideas actually to correct that they keep coming up with ideas they keep whispering ideas in my um in my ear but perhaps you know if i decide you know at one point i can't think of anything and pool of trouble for them uh i might start a new series um maybe it might be an offshoot with a character in or characters in this series or something totally new like um like set in world war ii or in the victorian uh, england era but at this stage, Emmeline and Gregory have my attention, my full attention. We've both come a long way since this podcast first started because there yeah. would have been in early interviews when an author told me they heard voices that I would think something was going on. <laughs> but I've heard that so many times now over the years that I know that that's just a part of the creative process. Yes. No, it is. It's certainly true because sometimes... They, um, my, my stories follow me into my dreams and Emmeline and Gregory wake me up in the middle of the night saying, oh, here's a good line of dialogue. So naturally I have to get up and write it down or an idea just pops into my head. Uh, I see something on the street and it's like, oh, Emmeline would go there. Emmeline would look into this um, and get into trouble, which is what my readers want to see. <laughs> We've been talking with Daniela Burnett. The latest book in her series is A Mind to Murder. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I've enjoyed chatting with you as always. And um, I hope uh, readers uh, look to find me. Uh, My website is daniellaburnett.com and I'm on Facebook, Goodreads. So uh, drop me a little note and I'd be happy to respond. Does the name Elise Robinson ring a bell? Don't worry if it doesn't. It didn't to me and it didn't to author Alison Gilbert when she came across a poem while looking through her late mother's things. It turns out Elise turned out 9,000 newspaper articles, essays, columns, and poems during her 40-year career, and yet we have no idea who she is. Allison and co-author Julia Shears are trying to change that with their new biography, Listen World, how the intrepid Elise Robinson became America's most read woman. Who is Elsie Robinson and why should we know who she is? Elsie Robinson was the most famous, most well-read newspaper columnist who was a woman in the William Randolph Hearst media empire back in the 20s through the 50s. She wrote about every topic that probably you and I, Lisa, would consider urgent and timely and important today, whether or not it's parenting and family and how we should raise our kids to capital punishment, racism, anti-Semitism, 
she had her finger incredibly, remarkably, always on the pulse of what everyone was talking about. The natural follow-up to that is, why don't we know about her? Oh my goodness. I have so many theories. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of them is that I really believe there has been a steady, consistent erasure of women's histories. And that's evidenced by some solid research by the National Women's History Museum. They took a look at what students in this country learn in public schools, K-12. And what they found is that in social studies, what students are taught about historical figures, only 24% are women. That's incredible. So if you don't learn about women in social studies as often as you learn about men, these stories will continue to not be remembered. So I want to say that, you know, we can talk about all the stories she's covered, but I think when you you put a number on the fact that she wrote 9,000 articles and columns over the span of 40 years, which is incredible. It's insane. What happened to all these? Are they, are they collected somewhere? Do you have to go digging through like microfilm to find them? We did an exhaustive search because so much has not been digitized. And so we had to go to archives to look at the microfilm to really do our research there. You know, when biographers embark on their work, many times, if they're lucky, there are repositories, there are archives, there are libraries that have collected these materials on behalf of researchers and students in the future. There is no such archive for Elsie Robin. And so my co-author, Julia Shears, and I did that work on our own. And the volume of Elsie Robinson's writing is just extraordinary. And the reason why we structured Listen World the way we did is because we wanted everyone to read her words. We wanted people to understand what a great, incredible, urgent, timely writer she was knowing that no one had the time to do the research that we did. And so we use Elsie Robinson's own words throughout the entire manuscript of the book, Listen World, for that reason, because she was so clear, she was so articulate um, that we wanted people to be able to read it, all her words uh, for themselves. And one of those resources was a, a memoir she wrote herself, right? Yes, in 1934, she wrote a memoir called I Wanted Out, uh, which really describes her life story. But the real essence of it is about her wanting a bigger, richer, more fulfilling life, which I think we can all relate to. You know, so many of us have our side hustles, we all have our dreams. And I think Elsie wanted something so desperately this life of being a writer, this life of being a creative, that she would stop at nothing to make that happen. And I find that to be so instructive to all of us, no matter what we all want to do, to have that core passion, uh, to be able to go for it. Uh, I think Elsie Robinson's life is like a masterclass in going for your dreams. And I think that's what Listen World at its heart, that's what the book is all about. And this was something pursuing these dreams. I mean, she really came up 
against what uh, society at that time dictated a woman should do, which was get married early, start having kids. And, and she was, a, you know, a woman ahead of her time, not only with her sensibilities, but also she was one of those rare people who got a divorce in like the 20s and 30s, which is really crazy. I think you have a stat, it's like 1% of Americans at that time were granted divorce. She wanted a bigger life no matter what. And she wasn't afraid to break with customs as you've just described. And I think a lot of women today, men for that matter too, you know, you see what society expects of you. And if that doesn't sit quite right, you can either sulk, get angry, be resentful, but stay stuck, or you can claw your way out to this bigger life that you want for yourself. And I think the decision to do that clawing, to do that work is something that I know that for me, when I learned Elsie Robinson's story and we wrote about it in Listen World is something that I took great comfort from. It gave me some, some real, um, you know, a roadmap that I can do that for my own life. So how did you first stumble across her and her story and her career? That's an interesting story. And it's really um, quite personal. So um, I'm from New York and I grew up in the Bronx. And when my mother passed away, I went back to my childhood home to clean out her belongings. And I had a lot of trouble making a short job really long because I was so unmoored by her loss. I was young-ish. I was 25 and the loss felt really big. And one day I was packing up my mother's books and a piece of onion skin paper, remember that old fashioned onion skin paper folded up inside a book fell out. And I opened this onion skin piece of paper and it was a poem that my mom had retyped and it was about loss and it was about grief. And the poem was called pain. And it was attributed to someone named Elsie Robinson. And I had to know who she was. And this is the poem that Elsie wrote after she lost her only son, right? She lost her only son. He had just turned 21. And it's not a grief poem that maybe you might expect. Elsie Robinson's voice is consistent in her tough love tone. And so this particular poem spoke to me because it was like, you know what? Snap out of it. Uh, you know, you are so lucky, basically, the poem says, that you had a mother who was worth missing. And it was just the kind of tone at that moment that I needed. And as we were digging through, as you mentioned, her 9,000 articles and essays and poems and her memoir that you had uh, mentioned as well, that tough love tone is so very Elsie Robinson. And she wrote about letting go of hate. She wrote about how to pursue your dreams. And it was all kind of couched in this tough love, quite maternal, right? What you would want your own child to do, how you'd want your own child to behave for this richer existence. And to be honest, I find some of her words so um, 
inspiring and spot on, even today, even though they were written a hundred years ago, that I find them instructive to my own life. And we wanted to put as many of them as we possibly could inside Listen World, which is, by the way, the first biography of Elsie Robinson that's been written. And the title takes itself from her column. Yes, Listen World, we didn't just make it up out of thin air. (laughs) She named her column Listen comma world exclamation point, which is kind of bold. And I must say she got taken to task for it. There are lots of readers, particularly men who uh, had issue with Elsie telling them what to think and what to feel and perhaps how to behave. And um, they thought it was quite audacious of her, but of course, undaunted uh, the title for column Listen World stuck. And we should note, she wasn't just a prolific writer. She was also a very gifted illustrator and became well-known for her political and editorial cartoons, right? She was somewhat of a unicorn. The fact that a writer would also illustrate is actually still atypical even today. In the world of newspapers, how it normally works is that a writer writes and an artist creates the illustrations to then you know, go with that written column. So they work in lockstep, but they're completely different jobs. Um, Elsie Robinson did them both. And political cartooning, by the way, is still a man's world. The profession is uh, not well represented by women. So the fact that she did both um, for such a long time and so powerfully actually made her a double threat um, because not only could she communicate her points of view with words, for those people who were skimming the paper, they could surely get her point of view just by looking at her illustrations. Now, I know you said you want readers to kind of take away some of her spirit and and bring that into their own lives and, and take that out into the world. But what do you think will surprise readers about her when they pick up this book? Oh, one of my favorite parts of the book is how she literally worked in a gold mine as a common laborer uh, to make ends meet. We think we have it hard today. (laughs) She was the only woman at this gold mine in a sea of men. And for three years, she dug for gold, looked for gold, stuck dynamite in a wall and ran away from a blast, uh, had injured men around her who she had to make sure stayed alive until the medic, until the doctor could come. This was hardcore. And she did it because she had no other way of making a living for herself and her son. We had talked about, she was in this marriage that was prescribed to her and she wanted this bigger life. And we talked about her leaving her husband to pursue it. But once she did, she was a single mother who needed to make money and she found herself in this gold mine. And that to me is a story um, that really sets Elsie Elsie Robinson apart. And it's one of my favorite parts of Listen World. We we started off talking about how she's really one of those people who've been lost to history and, and more specifically a woman lost to history. I guess it, it, in your hearts, you really hope that this biography might help bring her back out of those shadows. Oh, that would be the ultimate reward of this book. If I 
am successful if Julia, my co-author, and I, you know, get our way, so to speak, Elsie Robinson will be reclaimed as an icon, as a trailblazer, as a pioneer of a woman who succeeded in a remarkable, I mean, she became the highest paid writer in the entire William Randolph Hearst universe among women. That's an incredible feat. She reached more readers. Um, you know, her reach, you had mentioned, I believe that it was like 20, more than 20 million readers. You know, that's double the number of current subscribers hmm. to the New York Times. And the population was smaller without the advantages of getting news from other sources. And so she had the attention of Americans. And so if we can recapture that incredible energy in her voice and have current readers today know who Elsie Robinson was, I would feel like this book um, hit the mark. I would be so pleased that we could be able to resurrect Elsie uh, Robinson's legacy. And I should note that there is a small caveat when it comes to uh, Elsie and her legacy, which is, I think towards the end, you implore your readers to make sure that their own legacies are established and not forgotten, because in a way, that's what happened to Elsie. That's one of the other reasons we don't really know who she is, because she never compiled anything together. You know, her memoir never got, was able to get republished, and her husband never picked up on it and never did anything about it. Her family just, you know, it. that's one of the reasons she was able to disappear. I'm glad you brought that up. I, you're right. Um, Julie and I both think that Elsie Robinson doesn't get a free pass when it comes to why she has been forgotten. I think that there are social reasons that we've already discussed about how women have been erased from the historical record. But she also is to blame somewhat. She didn't donate her papers to an archive. She didn't make sure um, that the companies who she worked for um, had a repository set aside of all of her work. And they still have not been digitized. And so to me, there are lessons for us today, even within our own families how do you want to preserve your life's work? Where should that information go? Um, do you have a plan? I feel like if Elsie had a plan, which clearly she did not, um, then more people would actually know about her today. And I don't think anyone would still know about her if I hadn't found that poem after my mom died. I mean, that's kind of incredible to think about. She would still be lost to history. I, th I like to think that maybe she was just so busy getting all her thoughts and words out that she didn't have the time to think about the what if or the inevitable end. Well, isn't but that the question for all of us? We are all so busy. Um, everyone who's listening to you and me right now, we are busy. We are checking our phones. We are on social media. We are texting. We are reading the paper. We are watching TV. In some ways, 
we could argue, I am sure, that we've never been busier or there's never been more, you know, pulls on our time. And I feel that there's a lesson there that despite all of that noise, one day, as the onion used to say, the death rate is still holding steady at 100% <laughs> or something like that. Um, this is a lesson that we can all um, stand to learn. This interview will speak for our record, we can hope. <laughs> We've been chatting <laughs> with Allison Gilbert. The new biography is Listen World, How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman. Thank you to you and to Julia for plucking her out of historical obscurity and bringing her story and her words to light. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Lisa. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time we get to play matchmaker with author Lyndon Cohen Leugman. Sorry, not sorry for getting that song from Fiddler in the Roof stuck in your head. Until then, you can match with us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chunkovich.